Good morning. My name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at South Point. And if it's okay with you guys, I'd like to just start this morning by going directly to Scripture. And so if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, we have Acts journals in the seat in front of you that you can use. If you don't have any of that, it'll be up on the screen um, while you get there. I just want to give you a kind of idea of where we're at in Scripture. And so we've started the Scattered Church series. And what we've seen in the Scattered Church series is the church that started in Jerusalem is now branching off into like these little mini missionary teams of a couple people or individuals. And they're doing that with the purpose of sharing the good news about Jesus, both in Jerusalem and all the areas surrounding it, just like Jesus said they would. And one of the names that we heard last week was the name Philip. And this week we are going to be exclusively following Philip where he has this amazing interaction and once again Philip finds himself in a position to share the gospel. And so Acts chapter 8 starting at verse 26, this is the word of the Lord and this is what it says. It says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, the more I read this passage, the more I am just blown away by how God works. And to me, one of the things that this passage does really well is that it actually illustrates where all of the power and authority and effectiveness of the church and of believers come from. It illustrates that the thing that made this thing move forward from the very beginning is the same thing that makes us move forward today, and that is the message of who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross. That is what we call the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what was moving the church forward from the very beginning, and it's the only thing that can move us forward today. And as we walk through this passage of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, I want us to focus on a few things this morning, three things. First, we're going to focus on the inclusiveness of the gospel. Then we're going to focus on the exclusiveness of the gospel. And then we're going to talk about how the gospel has to be both. It has to be inclusive and exclusive. You see, we live in a culture that's driven by these words inclusive and exclusive, especially right now because everyone's always fighting hard to try to be a part of some community. Everyone's looking to be accepted 
by something. And there are groups that would say, well, if you want to be a part of our community, you have to look like this and you have to talk like this and you have to believe like this and vote like this and love like this and live like this. And if you do all of those things, then maybe we'll let you be a part of our community. That's a very exclusive approach. Only certain people get in. Only certain people are counted worthy. There are people who will be left on the outside looking in. There are people who will miss out. That's what it means to be exclusive. Then on the other side of the spectrum, we have groups fighting right now for the possibility that no matter what you look like or how you talk or what you believe or how you vote or who you love or how you live, that you should be entitled to the same experiences that everyone else has, that everyone should have the same opportunities and should just be accepted by everyone regardless of what their lives look like, that everyone should be able to live however they want and be included wherever they want. This is an inclusive approach. And a lot of people would suggest that you're either one way or the other generally, that you can chalk it up to religion or your identity or upbringing or whatever it is, but generally a person is inclusive or they are exclusive, but you're not really both. But the thing about the gospel is that the gospel of Jesus cuts right down the middle because the gospel is both radically inclusive and also radically exclusive at the same time. And so I want to look at what that means. And so first, the gospel is inclusive. The gospel is inclusive, and, and if the text didn't make it clear, there are two people in this passage, Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch, and these two people could not be more different. Philip is what would be the equivalent of a middle-class Jewish male, who if you didn't know anything about how Jewish men in this culture regarded themselves, Jewish men would actually pray every morning, thank God I'm not a woman, thank God I'm not a slave, and thank God I'm not a Gentile. That's real. They would pray that every morning. Thank God I'm not a woman. Thank God I'm not a slave. And thank God I'm not a Gentile, which is just someone who's not Jewish. They pray this every day. They regarded themselves as God's chosen, a very proud and exclusive group of people. You see, but what we're about to see and what we just read and what we're going to find as we continue to read through the book of Acts is that if you, or if you, even if you continue to read through the entire New Testament, what you're going to find is that the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ is something that breaks down both racial and cultural barriers. The gospel comes in and it takes our preconceived notions of who we are and who they are and who they are and who they are and it gives us an entirely new lens to look through. And it says there's not any us and them, there's only us and him. Later in the book of Galatians, Paul writes this in Galatians 3.28. This is so interesting. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and fe and there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You think it's a coincidence that Jewish men would pray, thank God I'm not a woman, thank God I'm not a slave, and thank God I'm not a Gentile, and then through the pen of Paul, God says, well, there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no slave or free, and there is no man or woman, there's only the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like God speaking directly to them. You see, all the things that divide us and push us apart, even today, the gospel begins to close the gaps and not only bring us closer to God, but the gospel will bring us closer together. And so we get this picture of what it looks like, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And so the Holy Spirit says to Philip, he's, he says, you need to go down to this road and wait. And as Philip's waiting, this man who is vastly racially and culturally and socioeconomically, meaning monetarily, different, comes rolling by in this chariot. Now what you need to know about this man is this was a black African man of extremely high social status. 
He's also a eunuch, meaning he's been castrated. And the reason why this man's been castrated is because in their time and culture, if you were going to work in close proximity of the royal family, if you were going to be alone with them, they weren't going to take any chances that you might taint their bloodline. And so if you wanted to work with the royal family, you had to voluntarily be castrated. And so this man has sacrificed a great deal to get where he is. He's respected in a lot of cultures, but in the eyes of Philip, a Jewish man, this man's skin color and his culture and his decision to voluntarily not have a family, this would make him social suicide for Philip to interact with. This man's nothing like you, Philip. He doesn't look like you. He doesn't think like you. He doesn't perceive the world as you do. Now go get close to him. See, the Holy Spirit tells Philip to approach the chariot. And just so we're clear, this chariot is in motion. Philip is pursuing. And so God's not just telling Philip, hey, if someone who's vastly different from you approaches you and asks questions, answer their questions. He's saying, no, Philip, you need to pursue this person who is vastly different from you. And so Philip runs up to the chariot, and he's now traveling alongside the chariot, and he's either jogging or speed walking, and this is what it looked like, and I'm going to do a modern-day speed walk just because I like the way that it looks. This is probably how it kind of looked, and so Philip is speed walking beside the chariot, and he's like, hey, how's it going? I, I see you're reading the Bible there. Do you understand what it is that you're reading? And right here in this moment when Philip asks this question, eternity begins for this man who is vastly different from him. You see, the reason why the gospel is radically inclusive is that it does not belong to just one culture. It doesn't. And we're going to see it time and time again in the book of Acts. Last week we read about Samaritans accepting Jesus. Soon we're going to read about Jewish priests accepting Jesus. And then we're going to read about Romans accepting Jesus. And then we're going to read about Greeks accepting Jesus. And it's going to go on and on until it spans the whole of the earth because the gospel of Jesus Christ is invading this world and transforming it. And what's amazing about the book of Acts is we're seeing the early footprints of that. That's why Jesus said the gospel is for every tongue, tribe, and nation. The gospel is for every person walking this earth if they're willing to accept it. It's for everyone. It's accessible to everyone. The big problem with Jesus saying that the gospel is for every tongue, tribe, and nation, though, the problem with that is that it's completely countercultural to how religion works in the world right now, and that's completely countercultural to how the world understands religion. You see, because the world would claim that religion is an invention of culture, that culture invented religion. And maybe you've heard this, that religion was just invented by the culture to appease and control the population, that basically European and North American countries, they developed, they developed Christianity, and, and um, South Asian cultures developed Hinduism, and Far Eastern cultures developed Buddhism, and Middle Eastern and Northern African cultures developed Islam, but essentially every culture kind of develops its own religion, and at the end of the day, they're all the same, kind of, and that's all religion is, right? But a man named Laman Sané, Laman Sané, and Laman Sané was a black African professor at Yale University, and I thought it was really fitting to get the perspective of a black African man as we read about this Ethiopian eunuch. Laman Sané wrote this book in the early 2000s called Whose Religion is Christianity? And in his book, Laman Sané points out that generally, the world is kind of right when it says that religion is basically an extension of culture and that believers live all pretty much in the same place it started. That's true for all religions except for one, Christianity. In every other major world religion, 
the vast majority of the people who practice that religion all kind of live in the same area of the world. For example, 96, 96% of Muslims live in the Middle East and North Africa. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Africa. But when you get to Christianity, the narrative changes drastically. Christianity is the only worldwide religion. Check this out. Did you know that 25% of Christians live in Central and South America, including the Caribbean? 22% of Christians live in Africa. 15% of all Christians live in Asia, but that number is rapidly expanding right now at like a staggering rate. Only 12% of Christians live in North America, even though we like to fool ourselves into thinking we're the biggest group. And then 26% of Christians live in and around Europe. You see, there's no other religion that looks like this. Christianity is by far the most culturally diverse belief system in the entire world. It stands out and it's growing, still growing. Did you know that Korea, Korea actually went from 0% Christian to around 50% Christian in just the span of 100 years? China is currently on pace to do the same thing over the course of 100 years to get from around 0 to 50% in only 100 years. Africa, the continent, Africa went from 9% Christian to around 50% Christian in just 100 years. You see, no other religion has ever moved into a new continent and done anything even remotely close to that. And so how is that possible? How is the gospel so inclusive? And Lamen Sané gives one example in his book, and he just speaks about African culture. He says that's all he can really speak about. That's his culture. This is what Lamen Sané says about when Christianity came to Africa. He says that in Africa, the African culture is very spiritual by nature. You can pull that quote. I'm not there yet. But he says, in African culture is very spiritual. He says that they believe in the presence and influence of spiritual forces in the world. That this belief in spiritual forces is kind of at the heart of their culture and their understanding of the world and their interaction with the world. Now, if someone from this African culture were to engage with the modern, non-believing world, say they came to the U.S. to study at Harvard or they went to England to study at Oxford, there would be people there who would say, we're completely inclusive. We love your culture and you can, uh, and we respect your culture and you can come and you can cook your African food and you can even teach us about that and we want to hear all about that and we love that. And you can wear your African clothing and you can teach us all about that and we would love to hear about that but just so you know, uh, spirits aren't real. They don't exist. And so you have to engage the world scientifically. We're going to teach you how to do that but there's a scientific explanation for everything and so we, we love your culture. We really love it but we're just going to cut the heart out of it. At the end of the day, if you're not a modernist, intellectual, secularist like us, you're, you're just not really enlightened. And so we're going to help you get enlightened. You see, that's not inclusive. It claims to be, but that's just manipulative. Yet Lama Sané says when Christianity comes to Africa, it both accepts and challenges the culture. Because on one hand, Christianity says, you're right. The world is a very spiritual place. There are a lot of spirits. There are evil spirits. There are good spirits, angels, demons, all of it exists, but what you have to understand that there is one who has overcome the evil spirits, and his name is Jesus Christ, and through him, not only do you not have to fear evil spirits, but you don't even have to fear death anymore. You see, Christianity embraced African culture, but in a way that renewed it and made sense of it. 
Lamentane finishes with this quote. I mean, I, I love this quote. It says, Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. You see, Christianity is far more inclusive than even the most modern secularist who says they're inclusive. The thing about Jesus is that Jesus wasn't seeking to create a new culture for everyone to adhere to. He wasn't trying to push everyone through the same cookie cutter. Instead, Jesus came to create a way so that any person of any race, of any culture, with any background could experience life through him. And so Christianity doesn't belong to any culture, and Christianity certainly isn't an invention of culture or an extension of culture. You see, the message of the gospel comes down from above, and it makes itself available to anyone who would accept it, no matter where they are in the world, what they believe, where they grew up, what their lives look like, the gospel meets them there. Jesus meets every soul directly where they're at. And that's what makes the gospel radically inclusive. And we don't get to see Philip's conversation with the eunuch. All we know is that it's about Jesus, and we know that even though this man is vastly racially, culturally, and socially different from Philip and, and has nothing really in common with Philip, that something about Jesus connects with this man immediately. And so maybe you're here and, and you love inclusive culture and you want everyone to be included and welcomed and this word inclusive just gives you that like warm and fuzzy feeling and you can't wait to go tell everyone that the gospel is inclusive. But the truth is in order to understand how the gospel is inclusive, we also have to understand why and how the gospel is exclusive. And don't worry, this point's shorter. And the reason why this point is shorter is because I don't really think anyone would argue against the fact that Christianity makes some really exclusive claims. Christianity says there is a point to all of this. We're not just here by chance. There is an answer to all of this. There is a meaning to life. You see it in verse 34. The eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah. And if you've never read the book of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 53, um, these verses are all about Jesus. They were written 400 years before Jesus ever lived on earth, but they were written specifically about him. They're 100% about him, and they point to what Jesus would go and do on a cross. It's this, it's this amazing chapter. And in Isaiah 53, it's, it's called the suffering servant is what people call it. And the entirety of Isaiah 53 talks about how there is this servant. And this servant, although they didn't do anything wrong, that this servant would go on to be hated and rejected. That this servant will go on to be struck and pierced. And eventually this servant will go on to die for the sins of so many other people, even though he didn't do anything wrong. That this servant would die willingly and endure the wrath of God because of the mistakes of people that he loved. And then the passage goes on to say that through the sacrifice of this servant, that generations upon generations of people would have their guilt erased and would be counted righteous in the eyes of God. Now this is exciting for this eunuch. And so the eunuch says, what does that mean? Who is this about? And what Philip doesn't do is say, you know, you can kind of take this text and create your own truth with it. Philip doesn't tell him it's open for interpretation. He doesn't say you can believe however you want to believe and that'll be okay. He doesn't tell the man it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something, as someone who is inclusive might say. Philip tells him the truth because there is a truth. 
He tells the man that this is about Jesus and that it's only by the sacrifice of Jesus that we can be forgiven and it is only by committing our lives to Jesus that we can be saved. Philip tells this man there's literally no other way. It has to be Jesus. It is exclusively Jesus. And then by the time they're finished talking, this man looks out the window and says, hey, there's some water. I want to be baptized. I want to follow Jesus. He makes this decision to accept Christ and dedicate his life to him on the spot. And it's because Philip told him the exclusive truth about Jesus. I'm going to draw a distinction for you, the biggest and most important distinction between following Jesus and following any other world religion. You see, every other world religion has a founder. And that founder is in all cases either some kind of prophet or sage or wise teacher. And what that, that founder of this religion does is they point and they tell people, this is how you find God. And every other religion, the founder is pointing away from themselves and saying, this is how you get to God. You go this way. You live this way. And it's interesting because what they've all basically done is they've just created their own path, but they all generally believe in the same God. It's almost like God's at the top of a mountain and there are just a lot of different paths to get there and they believe they're just offering you one of those paths. So if you really, actually, there's a Hindu proverb that says there are hundreds of paths that go up the mountain all leading to the same place and so it doesn't matter which path you take. A famous Buddhist monk wrote, many paths lead from the foot of the mountain but at the peak we all gaze at the single bright moon. It's interesting if you really think about it All other major world religions are basically dudes standing at the bottom of a mountain with a sign telling you they know the way to get to the top. And if you walk by any one of those signs, you could choose a different path. If you choose Buddhism, they'll offer you something called the Eightfold Path that they believe leads to God. If you choose Islam, they'll show you something called the Five Pillars. And yeah, they're all kind of different at the beginning, but essentially they believe that it all lands you in the same place. And that's all religion is. And that would all work fine and dandy, except... Christianity doesn't work that way. It's vastly different because Jesus Christ didn't come to earth and say, I'm going to show you the way to get to God. Jesus said, I am God and I've come to find you. Because you would have never gotten to the top of the mountain by yourself. And so I came to find you and I am the God you're seeking. So if you have all other major world religions where the founder is showing you how to get to God, and then you have a single outlier in Christianity where its founder says, I am God. Either Christianity is right and everyone else is wrong, or everyone else is right and Jesus is just a liar or a lunatic, but it can't be both ways. You see, the world can say Christianity is right, the world can say Christianity is wrong, but what the world cannot say is that Christianity is just one more world religion because it doesn't function like the rest of them. It can't just be one more religion because it's far too exclusive for that. So the gospel is the most culturally diverse and inclusive system of belief in the entire world. But at the same time, it makes far more exclusive claims than every other religion combined. It's like this paradox. It's both radically inclusive and radically exclusive at the same time. And so how can the gospel be inclusive and exclusive? Well, it can be because Jesus doesn't point outward just to show us another path. Jesus points to himself and says, I'm the only path. One of Jesus' disciples literally speaks on everyone's behalf and says, we don't know the path. We don't know the way. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I'm the way. 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. I mean, it doesn't get any more exclusive than that. Jesus literally points at everything else and says, it cannot save you. None of it can save you. Only I can save you. And so that's why I came and did what I did to do exactly that, to save you. And if you follow me, not only are you going to get to the top of the mountain, but I'll help carry you there when you can't walk. And I'm going to welcome you back because you're going to wander off. I'm going to welcome you back when you wander off, and I'm going to love you. And I'm going to put your heart back together when this world smashes it into a million pieces. And then I'm going to be here for you throughout your journey on this mountain. I'm going to be there for you the entire time in ways that no one else ever could be. And then one day, you're going to get to the top of the mountain, and you're going to see my face, and nothing's ever going to be the same again. But it has to be me. It has to be me. That's pretty exclusive. Let me ask you something. What in the world is a wealthy black African eunuch doing taking a thousand mile, almost year long, both ways trip to Jerusalem to obtain a copy of an Old Testament Jewish scroll? Why would a man who has everything he ever wanted when he has all this power and money and he lives in a country that has religions of its own and he lives in a country with a culture that looks upon him with great respect and he lives in a country where he sacrificed everything to make his dream a reality. What is he doing putting all of that at risk to take this journey? Why would he do that? Another thing, the temple in Jerusalem wasn't just open to everyone, if you didn't know that. There were laws about who could worship, and one of the laws stated that eunuchs weren't allowed in the temple, and so almost certainly this man would have been turned away at the door after an almost thousand mile journey. And so it's nearly a guarantee that the scroll that he's reading would have had to be obtained in some illegal way. Luckily for him, he's rich and most of the Pharisees were for sale and would do anything for money. And so by some means, he has this scroll and he's now intently reading it. He's scouring over it. What's going on here? You see, these are the questions you have to ask when you read scripture. Who is this man and what's his story and why is he doing what he's doing? And the answer is, he's looking for something. He's looking for something, just like all of us are looking for something. But he has everything he ever wanted, everything he set out to achieve, but it's not enough. What the world and what culture and what other religions have to offer, it's simply not fulfilling him. And even after everything he sacrificed to get to where he is, he's gotten to the top of his own mountain and he's found that it didn't deliver. And if we're being honest, I would wager that one of the things that this man is dealing with more than anything is regret. Because he sacrificed an opportunity to have a family. He sacrificed an opportunity to have loved ones and to have a legacy to obtain all this money and power and he still feels empty until Jesus finds him. And so I imagine after Philip is gone and This man is sitting in the cart and he's probably all excited and like spiritually on fire and full of the Holy Spirit because he just gave his life to Jesus and everything is going to be new and everything is going to be amazing. I wonder if it's in the back of his mind of like, yeah, but I'm still not going to have a family. I find this really interesting. He was reading Isaiah 53. I imagine he gets back in his chariot and he picks the scroll back up after Philip's gone and keeps reading. He's in Isaiah 53. Imagine when he gets to Isaiah 56 in just a few minutes and reads this. 
Isaiah 56 says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. God says, Don't let any foreigner who's decided to follow me think that he's not going to be accepted by me. Interesting. Then it says, And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Basically saying, Let not any eunuch say, I'm not going to have a family. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. How interesting that a foreigner and a eunuch, a man who's given away a chance at a family, he gives his life to Jesus, and then in a few minutes he's about to be reading that not only has God welcomed him into his family, but God is going to give him a name better than sons and daughters, that regardless of this man's struggles and his mistakes and his own foolish sacrifices and his own wanderings, that there is a God who fully knows him and who fully loves him and who came to make a way to save him and give him what he's been searching for his entire life. But what Jesus offers is love, acceptance, peace, hope, joy, and purpose. This man has found that, and that's what Jesus offers to every single one of us. Praise God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are inclusive in such a way that no matter what we've done, no matter where we're from, no matter how far we run away from you, that we think you can't find us, that you are so inclusive that you welcome everyone into your kingdom and you died for every single one. And that's amazing. Jesus, we're also thankful that you are so exclusive that it is only by you that we can be saved, that it's not by our own effort, it's not by following anyone else or following some behavioral get better plan or try to save ourselves, but it is only by you and by your grace alone. And if it weren't that way, none of us would have any hope. God, I pray that as we go back into our daily lives, God, I pray that the, the message of the gospel, this message of who you are and what you've done for us, God, I just pray that it resonates in our heads and in our hearts and that we begin to see the fruit of it in our lives. And God, if we're not following you or we drifted, I pray that you bring us back to you and to your heart and what you're doing in this world. You are making everything new. God, I pray that you make us a church that seeks out people who are vastly different than us because we believe that your word and your message is for every single one. We recognize the ways in which you saved us, and we want to see that for the people in our neighborhoods and our lives and our families, people that we don't even know. We just want everyone to experience this amazing gift that you gave to this eunuch, that you gave to every single one of us. We want to be the messengers for your amazing news. Jesus, thank you for who you are and everything you've done for us. We don't deserve it. But we commit to you and we submit to you because you have authority over heaven and earth. You are amazing, God. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.